Will you please turn with me in your Bibles to the fourth chapter of the Apostle Paul's letter written to the Galatians, where this morning we are going to be looking together at verses 1 through 7. Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. You can find that passage on page 1143 in your pew Bibles. I've mentioned to you many times before that occasionally we come across some of those chapter breaks in Scripture that are a little bit tough to understand as to the reason behind the original compilers of the Bible dividing and separating in the places that they did. Today, as we begin another chapter, chapter 4, in the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians, we see another such instance. Last week, we spent our time talking about the end of chapter 3, and in particular, the comparing and the contrasting of the law with the promise. The law is a mirror that reveals to us what we really are before a perfectly holy God. When we peer into the law and the Holy Spirit has given us eyes that truly see, we actually should be horrified with what it is that we see looking back out at us. The law reveals to us the true filthiness of our natures. We talk about it all the time. The law reveals our sin. It serves to show us our own dire and desperate need for a Savior and a salvation. It accuses us. It convicts us. It condemns us. And as the law does its work, it rightly brings about our own unraveling at the seams. And beloved, if you or I ever go to the holy law of God and we think we see something else looking back at us, then we have good reason to believe that we are not really seeing the law of God at all. If we peer into that mirror that we call the law and we like what we see, we see how well we are doing. We see how at least what we believe to be righteousness personified. We see how much better we are doing than everyone else around us. Then we have most certainly missed the point of the holy law of God altogether. The law simply does not serve to make you feel good about your situation. It's not a good place to go to see just how incredible your works truly are when weighed against its holy, perfect standard. The law condemns, and it always has. The law does not allow for us to look into it and stumble upon contentment with what we find there. Apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, It destroys us. It should bring us to the end of ourselves. And then, only then, when it has done its work, can we look up to the cross of Jesus Christ and find His grace. 
bask in his grace. Appreciate his grace. The Galatians here had done the unthinkable in light of that grace and having peered into its rich and glorious depths. They had actually turned back to the law as a means of satisfying God. And Paul calls them back to a full realization and a proper understanding of the precious promise of the gospel. He tells them that the law came 430 years after the promise and that it cannot and it does not add to or annul the promise of God in any way. In fact, as we saw last week, it actually serves the promise. Let me say that again. The law serves the promise. It keeps us under guard as the true heirs of the promise. Paul reminds the Galatians that they certainly understand that even in a covenant made between mere men, nothing can annul or change what was already agreed upon and sealed in the covenant. We've been made a part of a far greater covenant. One made and ratified by one far greater than any mere man. And so Paul lovingly calls the Galatians back to that promise. He calls them back to believing Abraham. Back to the seed who was to come and make them all heirs according to the promise. Paul calls them back from the bondage of the law to the glorious freedom that is theirs through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, solely by the grace of Almighty God alone. He tells them that it is through faith in Jesus Christ that they have been made the sons and the daughters of our Most High God. The law acted as their tutor, their guardian, But after faith, they no longer were under a tutor. They're no longer under a guardian. They were sons and daughters. And if they were sons and daughters, then they too were heirs with Abraham. Heirs together of all the blessing of the promise. As I opened this sermon this morning, I mentioned to you that this text that's before us this morning really is one of those places where The chapter break is perhaps a little bit tough for us to grasp. And the reason is that today, in the first few verses of chapter 4, we see Paul continue to build his case for these Galatians to return to the promise, to return to a hearty trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone for their full and complete justification before the face of God, to flee from seeking their deliverance and their own supposed keeping of the law, and from all other forms of self-righteousness, as he continues to build up this concept of their being heirs according to the promise. It is absolutely a continuation of what he had already began in chapter 3, and it seems to me at least to simply be really the conclusion to to his final point there in chapter 3. The point is that once again, if you are someone who fails to see the hand of Almighty God 
inspiring men like the Apostle Paul as they wrote the pages of Holy Scripture for the benefit of the church, then again, I ask you to consider the brilliance of this letter. Just like a master artist continues to add depth to his painting with every stroke of the brush, with every little bit of shading, with every vivid detail added to give more and more in-depth perspective. So the Apostle Paul here in Galatians keeps building upon the foundation of this message. The foundation which is, it is faith alone in Jesus Christ alone, by the grace of Almighty God alone, that will ever justify sinful man before a holy and perfect God. With every additional example, with every precious detail that Paul adds to his defense, the picture becomes more and more clear. And brothers and sisters in Christ, the joy that we have in Jesus Christ, the freedom that truly is ours in him, begins to leap off the page. And we are able to see the wisdom and the brilliance and the glory of Almighty God in it. So this morning, we're going to continue our look together at this wonderful gospel-filled epistle to the Galatians in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, as we watch together as Paul continues to lay out this masterful defense of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'd like you to follow along in your Bibles as I read now Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of our Lord. Paul says, Now, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, than an heir of God through Christ. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful for the opportunity we have each Lord's Day to come before your word. We ask now that you would clear our hearts and our minds of those things that distract us, that we might give our undivided attention to your word so that hearing it through the power of your spirit, we might be transformed by it for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we would probably all agree that the Apostle Paul has really, up to this point in this letter, already made a very, very convincing argument for the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He has drawn from experiences, starting, of course, with his own experience and then turning to the experiences of the Galatians themselves. 
He has then gone to the Holy Scriptures and pointed to the experience of the patriarch Abraham and the idea of there being heirs of the promise along with Abraham and his seed, who Paul has told us is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. I only need to start to see some of these examples that Paul brings up, and I I myself am ready to repent of my self-righteousness, the self-righteousness that plagues my own life, and probably plagues some of your lives as well. But the point here is, Paul doesn't stop. He continues. He goes beyond that. He does not just come up with a couple of well-worded arguments here and say, in essence, well, that should be good enough to convince anyone. I certainly hope I didn't leave anything out. Or rather, what Paul does is continue to progress. He continues to move along, to move forward, and exhaust every possible angle necessary to bring these sheep back to the truth. Or at the very least, to leave them standing without excuse. I've said from the very beginning, this letter is written by one who fully understands what truly is at stake in this fight. And he leaves no stone unturned, no door closed as he gives example after example to these Galatians. So as not only to convince them of the truth, but to make them glory in the truth. It's not, just, it's not enough to just tell them that they have the gospel wrong. Paul wants to take them far past the mere acknowledgement of their fault and point them to a gospel that gives them back their identity, their purpose, and their true motivation to live the Christian life. He's not only seeking to correct their course, but to set them on a new course. Of course, where God gets all of the glory and man's salvation. And man happily loves, appreciates, and serves the God who loves him despite what he knows himself to be. A sinner who in no way deserves even a second glance from a holy God. One who deserves only wrath and indignation, but miraculously, mercifully, receives grace, mercy, and love from the hand of God instead. Gratitude replaces self-righteousness in this kind of gospel as the motivating factor or the driving force in the believer's life as he truly lives out his days quorum Deo or before the face of Almighty God. And so we find the apostle here adding yet another example to further drive home this point. And here in the opening verses of this fourth chapter, we see him building upon this idea of an heir by going in the direction of what we would call a minor heir. An heir that is not yet of the age to receive his full inheritance. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all, 
but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Paul continues here to use examples to drive home his point. It's a practice we see used constantly in Scripture. The prophets did it often. Even Jesus regularly used examples to bring home his teaching to those who were blessed enough to sit at his feet and listen to him. So Paul continues his list of examples here with the minor error. And beloved, we must see this. Paul is here comparing the church that was under the Mosaic law with that of an heir who, though he has promised a great inheritance, is still under the hand of guardians or tutors until the time that he has reached a proper age, a time that has been appointed by his father. Though the heir is promised an absolute something, an inheritance, until the time that the father appointed beforehand comes to pass, he is under the care of his appointed tutors and stewards. Though he is lord of his entire father's household, he still remains under the authority of his tutors. However, it's not a permanent arrangement. It's only for a time, a time appointed by the Father, after which he will not only enjoy his freedom, but he will enjoy the culmination of his full inheritance as the heir of all that his Father has given him. In the same way, the fathers of the Old Testament were free and that they were heirs of the promise. Yet they remained in one sense slaves under their tutor, the law, until that time when Jesus Christ would come as the full, perfect culmination of the promise. The true substance behind the shadows and put an end to the law being their guardian. When Jesus Christ came, the slavery of the law ended. And the people of God were pulled out from its yoke. Beloved, I hope hope you're catching Paul's point here. He's making a brilliant point. First, we learn from this example the substance of the hope that our fathers in the faith truly had. And we see something important about that hope. Those men who lived during the Old Testament and the hope that you and I have now are one and the same. We all hope in the seed of the promise, the Lord Jesus Christ. Their hope and our hope, beloved, are truly the same hope. They were adopted as sons and daughters of God in in the exact same way that you and I are through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Paul ties together here everything that he has said so far regarding the promise. We are all partakers of the same promise. And beloved, I want to tell you that in this day and age, it is especially a good point for us to see. These were not people of God who are somehow, some way separated from us. They believed and they trusted in the same promise. They were moved by the same spirit. 
They called upon the same God as their father. Do you see? We cannot fall into the er error here that has plagued so much of the church of Jesus Christ and misunderstand the entire flow of redemptive history in the Bible. Do you understand what I mean by that? The law was not just one part of the redemption of man that somehow failed miserably. And so God came up with a better plan. The Old Testament being plan A, Jesus Christ and his righteousness in the New Testament being plan B. That's nonsense. It does damage to who God has revealed himself to be. God is perfect. God is flawless. He is faithful. He is without mistake or error. He is infallible. He is infinite. And certainly he makes no mistakes. No, they too, the patriarchs, the prophets, the people of God, they look to the promise of God as their hope, as their only comfort in life and in death. They were a part of the church in its infancy. And those of us standing on this side of the glorious coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we're part of the church in its appointed time, in its maturity. Where the fullness, where the full inheritance of the Father is realized in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. They were in bondage. They were enslaved to the elements of the world. They were to be practicing ceremonies and rituals. They were participating in getting ultimately to the substance through the shadows. They were to bring to the altar the elements of this world. They were to bring the fruit of their land. They were to bring their grain and their crops and the blood of their animals. They were only to approach God through a mediator, the priest, who would, according to the law, perform what was necessary before a holy God. Only the high priest could ever go into the Holy of Holies and him, but once a year, only at the appointed time. We know that the Holy of Holies was separated in the temple by a great veil, a great curtain. And the priest could go into the presence of the Lord on the other side of that veil, but once a year. But in the infancy of the church, they were in bondage to the law and to the elements of the world. But this is not the case when in the fullness of time, the substance of all of those earthly shadows, the Lord Jesus Christ, came. Look at verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Beloved, do you hear the word of God this morning? 
Does it make your heart sing to hear it? You see, this is not just good news. It's the greatest news ever heard, ever uttered under the sun. Do you hear it? Jesus Christ came into the world. Born not in the natural way of a man and a woman, but born of a woman, the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, the mother of our Lord, and she conceived a child, though she was a virgin. Jesus Christ came into this world fully God, as part of the eternal Trinity, the Son of God, yet fully man, and that he was born of a woman under the law. We spoke just a couple of weeks ago about the necessity that Jesus being, the necessity of Jesus being both fully man and fully God. I'm not going to dive into that again this morning. We touched on it in the catechism even this morning. This is the incarnation of God. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. God took on flesh, the flesh of a man, and he walked among us. He did not surrender his deity, and yet he walked among us in flesh under the law. It amazes me every time I think of it. You understand, this is the miracle of our salvation, the very Son of God taking on flesh. And here it is in this simple example of an heir And Paul's explanation of it. He says that as children, the church still had the promise. They were under bondage to their tutor, the law, but they looked to the promise, longing to find absolute freedom in the Messiah, in the promised seed of Abraham. Now here we are, on this side of redemptive history, we've seen the culmination of that promise. And the truth is, we're no longer heirs in waiting, but we are full heirs in Christ, receiving the full inheritance of that precious promise. Beloved, I hope it still gives us chills to hear it. Paul is not simply pointing out theological possibilities to these Galatians. You understand that? He's pointing out glorious realities. And through them, he's seeking to fill them with a new zeal as he points them to the absolute glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not so different from these Galatians, are we? Beloved, we too like to go back to the weak and beggarly elements of this world. We too like to trust in what we see, what is tangible before us, what we can do or accomplish ourselves. We too like to place our trust in our own ability to do things for God. And we hope vainly to somehow obligate God to be pleased with us when he gazes upon our most noble and righteous works. 
we too like to have some of the say in our salvation, if not some of the glory. We like to keep some realm of our redemption under our own control. To keep for ourselves at least a small share of the credit. And Paul says to the Galatians, he says to us, beloved, open your blind eyes and see that the glory is God's and his alone and praise him for it. See that it is your joy in this life that God gets the glory. It is God's name. It is God's faithfulness. It is God's truth. It is God's power. It is God's deity that was placed on the line in your salvation. It was God who staked his own name upon the fruition of this very promise. His glory is our joy. Beloved, do you believe that this morning? It's the truth. And Paul says to these Galatians, he says to us, consider the promise. Consider the incarnation. Consider that though you deserve to be disowned, you have been named the sons and daughters of Almighty God in and through Jesus Christ. Consider it and rejoice. Live as those who have not only received the long-awaited inheritance, but as those who simply cannot be any more grateful for it. This is the beauty of the gospel message. And it can never get old. It should always point us to our own inadequacies, drive us away from ourselves towards the eternal adequacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is reaching a a fevered pitch here. And he still continues to point out the blessings that are theirs, that are ours, through the blood of Jesus Christ. It gets bigger. It's enough, but it keeps growing. He says in verse 6, And because you are sons, think about this, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Beloved, you can go down a rabbit trail here about the meaning of that word Abba. We get real silly about it. We say it's just this term of endearment. And when we do that, I'm not even saying that there's not some truth in that. But when we do that, we really miss the glory of what's actually going on here. There's a reason that Paul says that when we receive the Spirit of God, our hearts will cry out, Abba, Father. It should fill us with joy to know it. Though the law in its curse still exists, though we look into the law and we see our own wretched state, we hear its righteous condemnation of us, though this world is chock full of wickedness and examples of debauchery and sin, though our own lives are full of sin. The taunts of the devil and our condemnation are not the final word. 
But because we have been made sons, despite the fact we are indeed guilty according the law, God has sent forth the spirit of his sons, crying out in our hearts, Abba, Father. This is the depth to which you are united to the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. Jesus Christ cries out, Abba, Father. Our cry is his cry. The cry of your heart is his. Do you understand? Abba, Father. Though the noise of our condemnation is often deafening in this fallen world, our very hearts cry out to God as our Father. Jesus Christ naturally referred to God as Father, and now through our adoption in and through Him, we do as well. Do you hear what Paul is saying? Look, if you're someone who cannot stop condemning yourself, always returning to the law, always seeing where you fall short, always living as one who is defeated, always hating yourself, if you're constantly doing these things, I want you to hear the Apostle Paul here. In Jesus Christ, united to him by faith, you have been made the legitimate son, the legitimate daughter of Almighty God himself. That's the truth. And as sons and daughters, the very Spirit of God is now in your own heart, crying out to God as your Father. You do not simply aspire to be a child of God. You are made by the grace of God a child of God. He has adopted you as his own. You now have the full, complete blessings of the promise of God as your true reality. And when the noise of this life gets to be just too much, listen for that voice in your heart, crying out to your Father, and rejoice that it can. Because Paul says in verse 7, Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son then an heir of God through Christ. You who belong to God are no longer like children who are waiting for the promised inheritance. No longer like children under a guardian. But now in the full maturity that was appointed by your Father in heaven, you have the full inheritance that is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. Praise God for the blessings of Jesus Christ. Praise God for the culmination of this promise. It should never be a burden to us to praise God in the way we are doing this Lord's Day and the way that we do every Lord's Day. Right? And it's one of those things we come up against the truth and we, we have to ask ourselves those tough questions. Was it difficult for you to get out of bed this morning And come here and worship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. You understand what I'm asking? Is it a burden to you? 
then I beg you, listen to the Apostle Paul as he describes to this church in Galatia, as he describes to you this morning the amazing grace of God that is yours through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Are you angry at your brothers and sisters in Christ this morning? Look around. Look around at the people gathered here this morning, the people that you worship with day in, day out, week in, week out. Is it tough to worship because of friction that you have between yourselves this morning? Then listen to the Apostle Paul describe your justification before God this morning and embrace one another as you realize how quickly, how, how much of life quickly fades into the background in light of the promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And let it become just more noise when held up to the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the righteous. Forget about the stress of this life and look to Jesus Christ and his love for you, his wanting to carry your own burden even to his death upon the cross. Listen to the very Spirit of God crying out to God as your Father, as our Father this morning. And worship Him like one who knows the truth about the salvation that has been given to you by the grace of God. Beloved, I'm saying, leave duty aside and worship like one who is actually in love with the object of our praises this morning as one who needs no other motivation than that to cry out to almighty God this morning our father the gospel message truly is at the very center of all of life and if Paul cannot get you excited about your faith as he gives us such vivid detail as he instructs and explains to us the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ like he does here in this letter, then I will have to assume that you are simply not hearing him. Do you hear him this morning?